abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In a moment, um, we're going to turn our attention to Jesus' words here in John 15, but before we do, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, that we can address you as such, that we can come to you as your children, all thanks because of what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Um, Or as we've rehearsed today in in the service, you are a God who has called us, you are a God who pursues us, Uh, you are a God who longs to be reconciled with us. Um, Thank you. Thank you that you are a God of Uh, steadfast love uh, and faithfulness. Lord, as we look out on the world uh, that you have made and we look out upon our lives, we see so much that is good and beautiful and true. And we want to take a a moment just to hold in our mind's eye some of these things, these these gifts and and blessings that you have given us. And we want to acknowledge that these are gifts from a good giver and a good God and Savior. Lord, at the same time, we see a world that has been racked by sin, that things are now not the way that they are supposed to be. We look forward to a day when all wrongs will be made right and your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as as it is in heaven. But Lord, we ask that you would heal our hurts and you would help us to overcome division and you would bring relief to pain. You would put back together what is broken. Lord, I don't know what's going on in every single one's life, but I know that you know. And I know that you are a God who meets us where we are at. Uh, You never tell us to fix ourselves and then come see you. You, you. You come to us. You move towards us with compassion. And I pray that to a person, we would experience your shepherding care through dark valleys of our lives and in the midst of our pain, we all have it. And so just as we held those good and beautiful things before you with thanks, we also want to lay our hurts before you and 
to see you draw near to us in those places. Lord, we also want to thank you for your provision of daily bread. I think in our, in our wealth and, and in, our, in, in so much of the West, praying for da- daily bread often sounds like thank you. You are God who has given us so much. Um, you have put food in our bellies and, uh, and you have put clothes on our backs and, and a roof over our heads. But would we not take these things for granted? Would we have a, an appreciative and grateful heart? Um, and would you work in us hearts of mercy for those who don't have those things? Would we be able to share our lunches, as it were, with those who lack, that they might taste and see of your goodness in much the same ways that we have? Lord, it's not just food uh, that we need. We also need your word to circulate through our lives. We need to hear from you. We need hope and meaning and purpose. Um, We need courage to do the things that you have called us to. And compassion for hard-to-love people as surely as they need compassion to love us. We need the grace of forgiveness. Uh, We need the grace to know that we've been forgiven. And so, Lord, make us a reconciliatory people. Make us a generous people, a hospitable people, people in your likeness, after your image. And, Lord, protect us. Protect us from lies that would seek to separate us from you, lies that would seek to break the unity of this church, lies that would have us um, live destructively and not the good life to which you have called us. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you on these pages, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today, and hearts that are open and receptive to everything that you want to impress upon us. Would this not only be for your glory, but would it be for our good and for the joy of the world? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As Bradley mentioned, my name is John. I'm the campus pastor at the University of Vermont for the the campus ministry of this denomination. It's called Reformed University Fellowship. We, my wife and I, we left this church to start RUF at UVM 10 years ago. And we've been able to do gospel ministry on that campus because of your bank, or because of your support, your, your prayerful and your financial support. And I don't know how to work this into the sermon, so I'm just going to say it at the outset. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for my family, but for the students at the University of Vermont to let them know that Jesus loves them and is pursuing them. This is a work that we are in together, and we couldn't do it without you. And to a church as a whole, but also to a person, I just want to say thanks. I'm glad that we can have some chili afterwards, and I can say thanks to those whom I know, and there's some of you I, I don't know, and it's really, I'm glad to see you here, and I hope that we get the chance to meet. Um, but you ought to know that this church is really supportive of missions like RUF at UVM and, and many others, and, and I, for one, am, am, am very, very grateful. So thank you.
Um, I'm not just a campus minister. I'm a husband and I'm a dad. I've got two children, um, a daughter named Willa and a son named John Bradley. We call him JB. And uh, I'm sorry they can't be here this time, but they send their love and their regards, and I hope that they can come on the next trip. Let's turn our attention to John 15. Whenever we invest in something, we want that investment to pay off. At school last year, my daughter was given a plastic cup of dirt. Inside her cup of dirt, Willa planted a seed. I'm pretty sure it was a watermelon seed. And every day, Willa would hurry into her classroom, and she would check on her watermelon seed and survey it, looking for signs of growth. Willa was invested in this plant, though it didn't cost her very much. I mean, her sunk cost was literally like a seed that she sunk into the soil with her thumb or forefinger. But even though it cost her little, Willa was invested. She cared what happened to the seed in her cup and in her care. Thinking about Willa with her cup of dirt has got me thinking about you with yours. We all got a cup of dirt, don't we? Now granted, your cup of dirt is bigger and more metaphorical than my daughter's, but you've got a cup of dirt. Your cup of dirt is your realm of responsibility. It's the people and the things that God has put under your care. It's your work and your family and your friendships and your dating relationships and your marriages and the like. It's the sum of these things. This is your cup of dirt. Right? Even God has got a cup of dirt. It's this world, right? This earth. He's invested in it and he's invested in us. Yes, your cup of dirt is bigger than Willis. Yes, you're investing more than a seed in some H2O. Right? You're investing time and energy and attention, blood, sweat, tears. And yet, despite these differences, you have this in common. Willa wanted the life in her cup to grow healthy and strong. And we want the lives in our cup of dirt to grow healthy and strong, too. Because whenever we invest in something, be it people or plants, we want our investment to pay off. We want the hours of care and attention that we give it to be worth the while. And to borrow language from, John, uh, from Jesus in John 15, we want there to be fruit at the end of the branches, right at the end of the vine. Now since fruit is what we're after, it's probably helpful to specify what fruit is and isn't. Right? Fruit is not an ornament. In a couple months, we'll put a, a tree in our house and we'll adorn it with with decoration, with ornaments. That's not what fruit is, right? Fruit is not a decoration hanging on a tree there to make the tree look pretty. It's not a badge. It's not a medal. It's not a gold star, right? Fruit, you could say, is not so much for the tree, but for those around it. See, fruit grows up and out of the tree, giving life and nourishment to those around it. And God wants us to be like that blessing and enriching the lives of those around us. He wants to grow in us a certain quality of life that others, when they encounter it, when they encounter us, when they sink their teeth into our lives, they taste and see that God is good. But that's not all. Fruit is all of these things, but fruit is also how a tree 
reproduces itself. If you give somebody an apple, for example, you're not just giving them a snack. It's not just something to eat. You're gifting them something that has, at its core, the potential for more apple trees. And God wants us to be like that, too. Living lives that not only embody God's goodness, but lives that have, at its core, the seeds of the good life. Seeds that can be shared, that others can then grow and embody and experience for themselves. Fruit gives life, fruit encapsulates life, and fruit multiplies it. Connecting dots in verse 1 of our passage, Jesus says, I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now as verses 2 and following make plain, the father farmer wants us, his people, to bear good fruit. But what kind of fruit exactly? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. In Isaiah chapter 5, God is explicit about the kind of fruit he wants us as people to bear. I, I invite you, if you want, to turn to page 569 of your pew Bible. You can follow along with me, but I'm going to read to you verses 1, 2, and verse 7 as well. This is Isaiah 5, found on page 569. God says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Jumping to seven, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God is a gardener, and he has planted us here on earth for a purpose. He wants his justice to grow out of us. He wants his righteousness to flow out of us for his shalom to fill the face of the earth. Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Cornell West said that, and I'm sure Jesus would agree. Because when Jesus commands us to love one another, as he does in verses 12 and 17 of this chapter, it's because the Son wants what the Father has always wanted. Love of God and love of neighbor. Right? Love in public. Love in deed. The fruit that God is growing in us is not meant to be kept behind closed refrigerator doors. It's not meant to sit in a white wicker basket on our kitchen island. The fruit God is growing in us is more like the raspberries my neighbor planted along his fence line. Planted there so that all passersby might pick them and enjoy the melt-in-your-mouth goodness that is a raspberry. And similarly, God wants us to be men and women after his image who live lives full of justice and righteousness and love. People who put broken things back together again. Who care for the weak and the marginalized. Who give a voice to the voiceless. He wants us to live lives, uh, sacrificial lives, full of generosity and hospitality. People who give a watching world a little glimpse and a little foretaste of the kingdom yet to come. By this my Father is glorified, Jesus says at verse 8, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit that not only brings joy to the world but has in its seed the DNA of eternity. 
God wants us to grow this kind of fruit. And listen, you want to grow this kind of fruit too. Because at the end of our lives, at the end of our branches, we want something good to show for it. We want to be the kind of branches uh, Jesus is describing in John 15. We want our lives to tell a story of God's goodness and faithfulness. We want to hear Jesus' approbation and benediction. Well done, good and faithful servant. So it turns out fruit is something that we all want. God too, right? And Jesus, in John 15, he tells us the two things that must happen in order for us to get this. In order for us to live fruitful lives. And I'll start with the most obvious. The word abide is mentioned ten times in the passage I read out loud to you. Abide comes from the Greek word meno. It's a word that means to remain in, to reside in, to live in, or as translated here, to abide. Now someone abides in an abode. And Jesus is inviting us to abide or to live in him, for us to make our home in him. Now, it's unusual to talk about us living in somebody until you pay close attention to somebody's wedding vows. When a couple is getting married, essentially what they're saying is, I'm all in. Like, I'm not going anywhere. And that's kind of residential language. I'm all in. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. And this is what Jesus is communicating here. I'm all in, friends. I'm not going anywhere. Now abide in me as I abide in you. Abide in my love. Like hold tight to me, friends. Hold tight to me, bride, because I'm holding tight to you. While it's important for us to hear the very real and I think personal aspects of this invitation, I think it's equally important that we don't lose sight of its context or consequence. And an easier way of saying what, or a simpler way of saying what I just said is that Jesus' invitation and command to abide has, as its context, a larger conversation about fruit bearing. Jesus wants us to abide because Jesus wants us to bear fruit. The best way I know how to illustrate this is not with a branch and vine, but with a hose and water sprinkler. When Megan and I moved from Newton to Burlington 10 years ago, we bought a house on Green Street. And when we bought a house on Green Street, we inherited a mud pit for a backyard. It was tohu and bohu back there. I mean, it was formless and void. But within a week, we got to work, and we started bringing order out of chaos. We put in a stone patio over here, and we planted, I don't know, some azaleas right over here. We created spaces and we filled them. And it was good. It was good. It was good. Well, as the work week was nearing its completion, we put a water sprinkler smack dab in the middle of the backyard to keep everything around it green and good. Water flowed in and water flowed out. The sprinkler always sharing, never running dry. The backyard was very, very good. But one day I turned the water on at the source and no water came out of the sprinkler because somehow the sprinkler got disconnected from the hose. I picked up the sprinkler and a couple of droplets of water fell out. Like clearly water had flowed into it once upon a time. 
but shaking out a disconnected sprinkler over thirsty ground is no way to water the yard. Cue Jesus' words in verse 5. Disconnected from me, you can do nothing. What would you do in a situation like mine? Better yet, what does God do in a uh, situation like ours? What does he do when his image bearers, designed to be conduits of his goodness and grace, get disconnected from him? What does he do when we run dry and the world around us begins to die? As surely as I wanted a good green yard, God wanted one too. A world teeming with justice and beauty and shalom. God wanted it then and God wants it today. Which is why when we get disconnected from him, God doesn't say to heck with sprinkler systems. Instead, he hooks back up what got disconnected in the first place. He sends his son, who in his life, death, and, re- uh, and resurrection perfectly reconciles us to our Father in heaven. And having reestablished our lost connection, he then tells us to abide, remain in me, stay connected to me. Let my life and love and joy flow into you, he says. And because you're a branch connected to a vine or a sprinkler hooked up to a hose, let my life and love Enjoy issue out of you as well. Keep Jesus' commandments by not keeping him to yourself. Jesus makes our abiding possible. And it's something he tells us to take some responsibility for. But this is only half the equation. Because growth doesn't just come from addition. Somewhat paradoxically, growth comes from subtraction as well. See, we don't just need to abide. We also need to be pruned. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. As we come to the end of verse 2, it's worth noting that everyone gets cut by the vine dresser. Some people are cut off, and some are cut back, but everybody gets cut. Most interesting, it's the good fruit-bearing branches that are cut many times, while those bearing no fruit at all are cut only once. I want to flush that out some more. About a month ago, Burlington Public Works pruned all the trees on my street. Two years ago, we left that house on Green Street, and we now live on Prospect Street. But this summer, right, BPW, they went through and they pruned all the the trees on my street. Theirs was a five-man crew, two chainsaws, and a chipper. When the work was done, every tree on my street had been cut. Every time I watched a branch get lopped off, I heard the chainsaw screaming, nope. And every time I saw or heard like a a branch get fed to the chipper, it seemed to my ears like some sort of dream or possibility being reduced to mulch. Watching the pruning and hearing its sounds, you might wonder, is BPW run by a bunch of monsters or sadists? Because it sounds violent. It sounds cruel. But they're not. Because the ones doing the pruning are not cutting the trees because they want to hurt the trees. 
They're cutting the trees because they love the trees, and they want them and those around them to thrive. When the work of pruning was done, and I surveyed where BPW had made its cuts, it was clear that they were uh, removing limbs that were growing dangerously close to a telephone wire or were stretching out into the street where they might have been clipped by a bus or a passing fire truck. Things that not only would have been damaged by the tree, but if they had struck it, would have possibly taken the whole tree down. At one basic level, pruning is a form of protection. It's cutting things off that left unchecked could bring down the whole tree, fruit and all. Which begs, I think, an important question. What are some things in your life that left unchecked or unpruned might threaten to take down your whole life? Might threaten to take down your marriage or might threaten to take down your ministry, fruit and all. C.S. Lewis called this kind of thing a severe mercy. But I think we can just as well call it protective love. If there's going to be fruit at the end of your life and at the end of your branches, this must happen. God wants to cut out things that threaten to take down your whole life, fruit and all. But pruning is not just a form of protection. It's also a means of direction. I want you to imagine an apple tree. Odds are you've probably gone to an orchard this fall. Uh, We have done so with, with our kids. Uh, but even if you haven't, like it's the most popular tree, <laughs> fruit tree in our popular imagined. So just picture an apple tree with me. And half the, the branches on this tree are bursting with very good fruit, but the other half of the branches on this tree are not. Like the, the apples at the end of their branches are just kind of moldy or measly, kind of wormy. Like you don't want to pick them. So long as these not so good branches are connected to the tree, they're calling forth energy and resources from the tree. But once those branches are pruned, all the energy and nutrients that flowed to those not-so-good branches are now flowing towards the healthy ones, making the fruit at the end of their branches that much stronger, that much sweeter. Which is to say, pruning is a farmer's way of saying, don't go over here, but go this way instead. Right? Don't invest in these things. Channel that energy and attention and so on over here which I think raises another question, right? What is something that is robbing you of joy or robbing you of fruitfulness? Like what is something that no matter how much time and energy you give it, it's just never going to bear very good fruit? I can rattle off a few personal examples. Like doom scrolling the New York Times. That never produces very good fruit. And yet, I'm inclined to give that a lot of my thought life and attention. God wants to cut it out. Or how about like reading email right before bed? Not a very good idea. Not very fruitful. (laughs) Or checking email first thing in the morning. Also, maybe not the most productive thing to do. Most forms of social media, I think, fall in this category, at least for me. Or that one more drink. Or that one more episode of Netflix. Like, we all have things that suck up a lot of time and energy. Some of it yielding good fruit, and some of it, meh, not so much. God wants to get pruning. 
Pruning directs us in other ways, too. It opens up new possibilities and ways to go and ways to grow. You know, so long as RUF has been at UVM, students have heard the message that when Jesus calls us to himself, he also calls us into community. He calls us into his church. I like to say our journey with Jesus is not a free solo of El Cap, but it's more like a Shackleton expedition to the pole. We get to our destination with other people. UVM students hear this all the time. But then the pandemic happened. And students who got this message and understood the importance of community were now all alone, at home, in isolation, and in quarantine. And from a social distance, I watched them struggle to know how to connect with God on their own. They had a hard time hearing God's voice amidst the chaos out there, but they had a hard time articulating sort of the chaos that was going on inside here. Maybe you did too. And it just dawned on me, April of 2020, that I had done a good job on one aspect of my call, like sort of emphasizing the importance of community and like our our shared life together. B plus, John. But I was failing them in some others. B minus. I needed to teach them how to pray. I had not adequately prepared them for this. And it took the pruning that was the pandemic to help me to see that and to make some corrections. Pruning is a form of direction, as I had said. I want to give you one more story. In 2020, I had 20 graduating seniors. But at the start of this fall semester, I have 25 students total. After two years, that was the pandemic, our ministry just looks a lot smaller. But it's not because we're sick or diseased. I don't think we are. Uh, In some ways, I think we're more focused, and I think we're healthier than ever. But we just look smaller, right? We look pruned. I was talking to Bradley and Mita last night. Like, RUF at UVM looks like a 40-year-old ministry right now, but we've got 10-year-old roots. We're like a 2016 ministry, but with 2022 know-how. And pruning is like that. It's like time travel, but without a DeLorean. Like God taking us back in time and in some ways giving us this rare opportunity like, what if you could do it again? What if I could take you back in time and you could do it again, but knowing all that you know now? Pruning is like that. What a gift. What an opportunity if we will see it for what it really is. I don't think I'm the only one with stories like this. I'm convinced that God has used the past I don't know, let's call it 28 months, (laughs) to prune all of us here. We've all experienced cutbacks these past, uh, this past couple of years. We've seen cuts to our budgets, cuts to our staffs, cuts to our income, cuts to our vacations, and so on. Our commitment to the way, the truth, and the life has sometimes cost us a job, or a would-be friend, or even a donor. But rather than seeing these cutbacks as setbacks, see them for what they are, right? God's handiwork giving shape and direction to your life, teaching you what is essential and also what is superfluous, ways that you can repent, ways that you can grow. And I hope that CTK Newton uh, is a place where you can share those stories and encourage one another with tales of pruning. Pruning is a form of protection. It's a, prune, uh, it's a form of direction. It's also a sign of God's love. 
Uh, I mentioned Burlington Public Works pruning the trees on my street. Uh, about an hour after the pruning was done, I took my son JB from his crib and we sat on my front porch. A breeze began to blow through town uh, and the tree that was in front of my house, a tree that once seemed to me as stiff as a statue, now pruned, started swaying in the breeze. And it dawned on me that the tree out front had gotten so big and so full that it was hard to see the movement of the wind, right, of the spirit, of the ruach in its branches. But pruned, though, it called to mind that image in Isaiah of a tree clapping its hands with joy. In his book, Pilgrims and Priests, Dutch pastor Stephen Pass says, we're often concerned that our churches or campus ministries are too small, but perhaps the real danger is that they are too large. Well, Jesus often used small things to describe the work of the Christian. Seed and salt and leaven. But in America, no doubt in Newton too, right? There is an obsession with bigness. And we in this room are not immune. We want the biggest ministries, the biggest churches, or the biggest programs, or the most students, or the most likes. But what if being the biggest actually is getting in the way of Jesus' real objectives, which is not bigness, right, but fruitfulness? What if bigness is actually getting in the way of his real objectives, that his life might be seen in us? And that we would be the bearers of good fruit. As Pass writes, it's very possible that we must, we must become smaller in order to see this. Last September, my family went to the Champlain Valley Fair. The fair is, by its very nature, short-lived and ephemeral. I mean, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's noisy and flashy. At the fair, everything is fighting for your attention. Right, the blaring music, the flashing lights. And the fair is also obsessed with bigness. Right? Like the big sheep, the big pig, the big cow, the big pumpkin, the big sunflower, whatever. But in a quiet corner of a massive tent, right beyond the thousand pound pumpkin, beyond the 17 foot tall sunflower, everything fighting for my attention, like look how awesome I am, look how big I am, look how impressive I am. Amidst all of that, I stumbled upon a humble collection of bonsai trees. In a place where nothing seemed to last were trees that had been cared for across the generations. The oldest bonsai in the collection was 400 years old. Every one of those trees bore silent witness to a lifetime of love and devoted attention. Every one of those trees in their entirety proved that someone was guiding and shaping its life. Bonsai trees are beautiful, and they are this way because they are cut many, many, many times. And in the presence of the bonsai, I caught a glimpse of what it looks like when God, our good father and vine dresser, has his hands all over our life. The end result is a resting in its beauty. It's a non-anxious presence 
in a noisy, chaotic world. By way of contrast, sort of as a counter vision to the bonsai trees, I want to take you down the street from where I live. I want to take you to the edges of the farm down the road and to look at the berry bush that grows there. Without a trellis, their branches are rambling and aimless. Their fruit grows low to the ground, mushy, moldy, and stepped on. See, these bushes have no vine dresser, and it shows. This is what a life looks like. This is what a life looks like that resists pruning, that says, keep your hands off of me. And the end result is not pretty. Returning to the bonsai trees, then, pruning is not just a sign of our fruitfulness. It's ultimately a sign of God's love and care. God wants us to bear good fruit. There are things that he wants to add to your life. Ways for you to get connected and to stay connected to Jesus. Ways for you to be a branch or a water sprinkler and extend his love to others. There are things that he wants to add. But there are also some things he wants to take away. Ways for you to be lightened and guided and experience newfound growth. While you have a part to play in this growth, Right? Abide is a command after all. This work did not originate with you, and this work is not entirely up to you either. This is the Father's doing. You are in the hands of a good vine dresser. And even now, like right now, he is running his hands through the leaves of your life. And he is strengthening connections. And he is forging new ones. And he is pruning branches. And he is causing you to grow. This is for his glory, Jesus says. And it's for our enjoyment. Yours and mine and the world's.